0: Well, I don't know if you've looked at uh, your genealogy lately. I've got some pictures here from Stephanie's side of the family, just for fun, Uh, because we're in the middle of Matthew chapter 1 and looking at some genealogy uh, stuff, and we looked at uh, last week the patriarchs, and uh, this week we're going to look at uh, the kings, and I'm just going to pull several of the kings out of the uh, list that Matthew gives to us in order to kind of walk through that. Uh, I don't know who these people are, but I do know... Uh, that Wayne learned grace uh, as a result of some of them. In other words, um, and there's one particular picture. I mean, I wouldn't want to mess with this lady to save my life. You know what I'm saying? Uh, But these are all different uh, elements of of Stephanie's family and Wayne's family and all through. That's Wayne and his mom. Isn't that cute? Uh, Wayne Barber, former pastor here. And uh, uh, Wee-Wee, as that was the nickname was Wee-Wee, she called him Wee-Wee, and he really did not appreciate that. Um, rupley has got competition with the mustache going on here, And, and these are aunts and uncles and grandfathers. This was his dad, Wayne's father, so this is Stephanie's grandfather, am I right on this? And uh, he was in the Navy. He's got some amazing stories, actually, in terms of how God protected him and watched over him. I, I don't know what your family tree looks like genealogically. Uh, mine goes back into Switzerland. I remember uh, years ago my grandfather talking about uh, going back to Norway and trying to figure out the Christensen uh, tree. And uh, it's just difficult because there's so many Christensens in Norway. And so, I don't know, we'll have to get on and try to figure that out. I, uh, my family, my mother's side of the family comes from Switzerland. And so up in the mountains of Switzerland. And so that's fun. It's all cool. But you know what? When we talk about uh, family trees, when we talk about genealogies, it's interesting to see the different people in the midst of that, right? You go back and look, and maybe there's some believers, maybe there's some unbelievers. There's some people that maybe... Um, we're not so sure that we want to be known that we're related to them. You know what I'm saying? I mean, come on, right? You, you, is that true? And then there's people that you're like, yes, of course, look at the blood that's in my line, you know, and you get all fired up about it. In Matthew, we've got this list genealogically that is really phenomenal. Started out with the patriarchs, right? Uh, in Christ Jesus, you have the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, you have the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And when you talk about the Lord, obviously what Matthew's doing here is he's tracing this line through Joseph. Joseph is Jesus' stepdad. Jesus has the legal authority, the legal right in order to be the king because he's directly related to King David and then on back to Abraham. When you look at this list, uh, particularly of the king's, I don't know what hits you in it, and I, I don't know how this impacts you, but I want to tell you something. There's some great kings, and there's some kings that you wonder, how did the Lord not just take them out? Amen? You, you kind of look at what they did and the things that they uh, were given and blessed with in terms of the word of God, the temple, the sacrifice, all the different aspects of it, and yet you look at some of the mistakes they made, some of the blatant sin that they accomplished, how they led Israel in so many different ways that was so ungodly. And yet in the midst of it, God still used them. God still brought about his purpose. And I want you to think of it this way this morning. God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect plan. Can anybody stand in the way of what God wants to do? Now, that should be a resounding, absolutely not, right? Nobody can stand in the way of what God wants to do. When God accomplishes something, when God sets the pace, when he sets the path, when he sets exactly what it is that he wants to accomplish, there's nobody that can stand in his way. And when we look at this genealogy, we'll find all kinds of different types of individuals in here. We'll find people that aren't even uh, Jewish, Right? We'll find people that were just absolutely, if they weren't related to Abraham, you would have thought they were heathens because they were actually worse than the people they dispossessed from the land itself. But the beauty of it is, is that when God chooses to work, when God has promised, when God is moving, God uses imperfect people in order to accomplish his perfect plan. And what a beautiful truth that is. Well, Matthew chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, Jesse was the father of David the king, and it starts out, because David really is central in this genealogy, and obviously he's the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Now, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? I'm not going to go into all this, but it's interesting that Matthew included that. It's almost kind of like, hey, remember. (laughs) Remember? Right? Remember where Solomon came from. Remember what David did. These were two of the godliest kings. Solomon didn't end out so well, but they were two of the godliest kings. They, they had an impact on the nation of Israel. It was incredible. Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Uh, um, who killed Uriah? Made sure that he was killed in battle. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. I'm glad I don't have that name. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good guy, a little vain, but a really good king, godly. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. We're going to look at Manasseh a little bit. Love the story of Manasseh. Goodness gracious. I don't know if you've had time to read through that lately, but It's amazing. Manasseh, the father of Ammon, and Ammon, the father of Josiah, my favorite. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. You've got this list of men. is included in this kind of as a reminder. None of them perfect. Some of them downright evil. And yet they're in the line of Christ. Think about that. Where does this end up? This ends up with the birth of the perfect one. Right? From Mary, out of Mary, who has the legal right to be the king because of Joseph. Indescribable, folks, how God accomplishes his purposes, and he uses imperfect people in order to accomplish his perfect plan. Let me give you four things this morning as we look at this. First of all, David. David. Oh my goodness, David, right? How many of you all have the name David? Just curious, you know. I've got two Davids in my family, at least immediate family, and uh, David is a name that's been used by uh, individuals all, I mean, forever, because David is so well-known and loved. But you know, the interesting thing is David had to be confronted due to his sin, confronted due to his sin. And let me frame it this way. When you think of the life of David, I would put a principle into this, keep short accounts with God. Keep short accounts with God. Don't let stuff stretch out. You get in a lot of trouble that way. And that's what we see in David in so many ways. Solomon, he was charmed by the things of the world. (laughs) I mean, he got his eyes off of the things that were good and right and holy and even though God had blessed him so immeasurably, he got his eyes off. He was charmed by the things of the world and the principle I would say in this is keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your eyes on Christ. Uh, Manasseh, he was chastened by the Lord. And I would suggest this, repent wholeheartedly. Repent wholeheartedly. And last but not least, probably my favorite, other than maybe David, Josiah is challenged by apathy. Follow God no matter the outcome. Follow God no matter the outcome. So first, confronted due to his sin, our dear brother David, can't wait to talk with him. Uh, I don't know what it was like to face Goliath with just a slingshot, but that must have been some moment in time, right? There's probably no person, no king, no prophet other than maybe the patriarchs, Moses, maybe Joshua's in that category who had an impact on the life and legacy of Israel other than David. When we talk about King David, you don't have to to explain who you're talking about. People all over the world know King David, right? Everybody knows King David. Everybody knows the story about Goliath. Everybody knows this shepherd boy, this harp player who slayed the bear, the lion, obviously Goliath, with just a slingshot, the bravery, the stand for God. What an incredible moment, right? Songs have been written about this. How many psalms did actually David write? I mean, it's an amazing thing. When we read through the psalms, the vast majority of them are by David, And we we read through and they're precious to us because of all that he went through and the difficulties and the challenges that he faced and the things that he uh, endured as he was anointed and then on from there. I I think it's interesting though because of some of the stuff that he did go through, he realized that he was the last choice by Samuel to be anointed. In 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, the Lord said to Samuel, don't look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I've rejected him. And he's talking about the eldest born of Jesse. Uh, David's the youngest of Jesse. And then the Lord says this to Samuel, for God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart, the heart. What a beautiful truth. David had fled Saul for years, He was blamed for things that weren't true. He hid in the wilderness. He gathered men around himself that probably we would never want to actually be a part of because they were absolutely the dredges of society and they all left society because of uh, something that had happened in their life and they gathered around David and David was their leader. (laughs) He would take them to war against the Philistines and it was indescribable what these guys did. David kept running from Saul, had an opportunity to kill him and didn't do it, how dare I touch the Lord's anointed. What amazing moment, right? Well, we know of his love for the Lord, we know of his devotion, we know of his zeal for the things of God. One of the greatest statements about David is probably found in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, where Samuel's actually telling Saul, Saul, this kingdom's gonna be ripped from your hands. He says this, now your kingdom shall not endure. He's speaking to Saul. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler of his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. You catch it? The Lord has sought out for himself a man after what? After his own heart. What a beautiful truth. David, a man after God's own heart. But was David perfect? Well, obviously not. And amen. We all know David's sin. We know of his adultery with Bathsheba. We know of the uh, compounding of this sin by the cover-up where he writes and he wants Joab to put Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, into the thick of the battle to make sure that Uriah is killed. Nathan the prophet had to come to David and confront him. You are the man. I mean, how hardened had David's heart become that all these decisions that he had made along the way to where he ended up in an adulterous affair to then when he had Uriah come and tried to get him drunk, tried to get him to be with his wife, tried to hide it over, tried to get all this stuff covered up, ultimately with his death, going along as if nothing was wrong. Here he is, the king. Nathan comes to him and says, you are the man. What an amazing moment. Don't you love David's response, though? Broken against you and you alone have I sinned. He repents. And I love Psalm 51, verse 17, where David writes this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In spite of all that he had gone through and all that he had done, He recognized that the Lord would not despise his broken heart. He recognized that there would be acceptance because he knew God and he knew the love of God. He didn't just know the law. He understood the heart of the compassionate God that he served. There was all kinds of consequences that came out of this. You can see it in Absalom, his son. You can see it in his family line. You can see all the division that took place and all the problems he actually fled at one point with, because he feared for his life. But, you know, in the midst of it, in the midst of his sin, in the midst of the fact that he was an imperfect man, God still had a plan for King David. Because God uses imperfect people in order to accomplish his perfect plans. God established a covenant with King David concerning the Messiah. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 16 and following, he says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And in accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Or in Psalm 89, 35 and following, he says, Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. Selah. What a beautiful psalm. God, in spite of all that David had done, in spite of all his imperfections, established a covenant with David about the Messiah, about his descendant that would come, that would sit on the throne of David and that would rule forever and ever. What a beautiful truth. I love David's response to it as, who who am I that you would do this through me? A man after God's own heart. Imperfect, yes, but a man after God's own heart. Well, unfortunately, one of the consequences of the sin with Bathsheba was Solomon. Solomon is a tremendous individual. God used him in amazing ways. But Solomon, unfortunately, kind of learned in a bad way from his father and got caught up in a lot of different things that he shouldn't have. And yet in the midst of his imperfection, God used him in phenomenal ways. The temple is obviously one of those. But when we talk about Solomon, what do we think about? Don't we think about Solomon's wisdom? Solomon's wisdom? It's interesting because 1 Kings 3, 3 says, now Solomon loved the Lord. This is how he started out. He loved the Lord walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. So there was this kind of a a moment where the writer ingrains into this great statement about Solomon a bit of a, a character flaw. He still was going to the high places in order to make sacrifices. He was still susceptible to some of the things that he shouldn't have been a part of. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, it says this, And Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask what you wish me to give you. And he could have asked for anything. He could have asked for riches, for wealth. He could have asked for power and fame. But instead, Solomon basically says, you, You've put me as king over your people And in verse 9 he says, so give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? Wow, that's awesome, isn't it? Later in 1 Kings chapter 4, now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. Wow. The Lord blessed him with that wisdom. Queen of Bathsheba would come and and wanted to talk to him because she had heard about his wisdom. People from all over uh, the settled world at that time were coming to Solomon in order to hear him talk about all kinds of things, plants and animals and insects. And he had such a breadth of understanding and wisdom. It was remarkable. David wasn't to build the temple, he had made provisions for it. The Lord told David, you don't need to build this temple, you're a man of blood. In other words, he was a man of war. And yet David wanted the temple to be built, and so he made provisions for Solomon to do that. And one of the great things that Solomon did was establish and build This temple in first Kings chapter five, verses four through five, it says, now the Lord, my God has given me rest on every side. There was peace for Israel. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. Behold, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God. As the Lord spoke to David, my father saying your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he will build the house for my name. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, he did build that house. In verses 20 and following, he says, The Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke, for I have risen in place of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised and have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. There I have set a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them from the land of Egypt. I, I love Solomon's dedication speech, and I would encourage you to take time in 1 Kings chapter 8 to read through this. At the end of the speech... He turns to the people and he says this about the temple and about the presence of God being with them as seen in the temple. He says, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no one else. Let your heart therefore be wholly devoted to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as at this day. Would to God that Solomon had walked in his own advice. Amen? In verse verses 23 of chapter 10, we begin to get this sad account where all this wealth and power and fame and fortune, success, began to have an impact on Solomon to where he was literally being charmed by the world. It says, So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches, And in wisdom. And my goodness, when you read through what Solomon had, it is indescribable. Verses 23 and following, we begin to get this picture where all the people began to bring Solomon gifts. They would bring articles of silver and gold. They would bring weapons. They would bring spices. They would bring horses. Every year they would have people coming to Jerusalem in order to honor Solomon and bring this. In verse 26 of 1 Kings 10, it tells us that he gathered chariots and horsemen. It was not only that he had wealth, but he had power, he had military might. He had 1,400 chariots, he had 12,000 horsemen. He stationed them in chariot cities and made sure that the people were protected. I like what verse 27 says the king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. (laughs) Now, obviously, that's hyperbole, right? But the point is, the writer is saying silver was common. Everybody had it. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, stones are everywhere. Somebody, when I went one time, said, Can you bring me back a rock? I didn't tell him it was from a parking lot, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, I, I remember it at the right time. I go, grab that thing. And I put it, it's, it's from Israel. It's from Israel, brother. I'm not telling you who it is, so you can't tell him, you know. My goodness, Solomon was wealthy. He began to import horses from Egypt, and he had these chariots. And then it tells us, chapter 11 now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, and he gives this list of all of these nations that he began to make treaties with. The Lord had told the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. And then this statement is made, Solomon held fast to these in love. God uses imperfect people in order to accomplish his perfect plan. We're told he had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines. His wives turned his heart away. And when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods and his heart was not totally devoted to the Lord as God as the heart of David his father had been. In verse six, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Oh, charmed by the world, charmed by the world. We're seeing that in Christianity today, folks. We are being so charmed. Paul puts it this way to the Galatian believers. Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Who has bewitched you? In other words, who's mesmerized you? What's out there that's religious and it looks good and you've got all kinds of reasons why we ought to be involved in this or that or the other thing, but it's bewitching. It has nothing to do with the grace of God. Solomon began to get charmed by all these different things. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ, folks. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Well, Manasseh was chastened, And in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, I mean, we have all these kings, Rehoboam, the kingdom split, and then you have this list. Jehoshaphat was a good king. You had Hezekiah, so you had good kings that were involved in this. You had kings that uh, were very forgettable in so many different ways. But they were all in the line of Christ, which is amazing. Because even if their heart was not turned to the Lord, even if they were not following God, God was still using them to accomplish his perfect plan. Why? Because God uses imperfect people in order to accomplish his perfect plan. Manasseh is one of my favorite stories of repentance and restoration. I mean, this guy really was evil. He actually allowed his children to be passed through the fire as they worshiped Moloch. I mean, it's indescribable the evil that this guy participated in. He was 12 years old in 2 Kings chapter 21, we're told he was 12 years old when he became king, 55 years of reigning in Jerusalem. And this statement is a summary statement. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. All that the Canaanites had done before Israel came and was used by God to judge the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Terabites, whatever... What happened? God used Israel to judge. Manasseh participated in all the things that had taken place before him. 2 Kings twenty one sixteen says, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had fulfilled or filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides his sin with which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. So it wasn't just that he did this, he's the king. He had everybody participating in this. In 2 Chronicles 33, verses 14 and following, or excuse me, uh, chapter 33, verses 10 and following, this is a great statement. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Oh, don't we need to be listening to the Lord? We need to be listening to the Lord with everything we we are, because the Lord knows best. As a result of them not paying attention, the Lord brought the commanders of the army, the king of Assyria, against, against them. And they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. Folks, what a miserable moment that must have been. When we talk about binding him with hooks, we're not just talking about tying him up. I'm not going to get graphic with you. But it's gruesome what the Assyrians did to their captives. So he gets dragged to Babylon. But in verse 12, it says this, when he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, to God, he was moved by his entreaty. God was moved by Manasseh's entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Oh, man. After all the misery and the wickedness, being taken captive into Babylon, dragged by the Assyrians off, he prays to God. He entreats God. He humbles himself before God and requests to be taken back to Jerusalem. And the Lord listens to him, allows him to go back and says, Then he knew that the Lord was God. Wow, what a beautiful Truth. What did he do as a result? Well, he removed the foreign gods and the idols from the house of the Lord, the temple, as well as all the altars which he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. He didn't just stop with saying, Hey, God is God, praise the Lord, I'm home. He began to institute reform. He set up the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it, and he ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel what a beautiful truth, what a grace story. Folks, we have the opportunity to walk with the Lord and we begin to walk through our lives. I would encourage the no matter what we get caught up in, no matter what kind of sin begins to beset us and we get our eyes off of the Lord like Solomon did, we begin to get charmed. Uh, when David is confronted, he, he wholeheartedly gives himself to the Lord And what does Manasseh do? He repents wholeheartedly with all his heart. If there's sin in our lives, repent of it wholeheartedly and watch how God is able to restore. What a beautiful truth. Well, Josiah's probably my favorite. I, I just love his story. I don't know what it is about that rings with me so much. But all around him was apathy. And I would suggest this, follow God no matter the outcome. Trust God, trust God, trust God, trust God. You never take God out of the equation. It tells us that Josiah did right in the sight of the Lord, walked in the ways of his father David, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. He's not like some who started out good and ended bad, or started out bad and, praise God, ended up good. He walked with God consistently and faithfully, his entire reign. It says in the eighth year of his reign, this is when he's 16 years old. Folks, you hear me? 16 years old. While he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father, David, and in the 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, the carved images, and the molten images. That's code for all kinds of sexual immorality. That's code for all kinds of nonsense that the pagans were worshiping and participating in. And Josiah, as a young man, began to cleanse Judah. He even went into Israel because Israel, the northern ten tribes, they were participating in these things. He even went there in order to try to work through this and have these reforms dealt with. Well, in the midst of it, the temple was in disarray, and so Josiah ordered that the temple would be cleaned, that they would begin to do the sacrifices again. They would begin to take the offerings that the people were supposed to, to be giving for the temple and for the Levites. And in the midst of this, think about this, they found the book of the law. Now, what does that tell you? It means that nobody was reading the Word of God. Nobody was following the Word of God. Apathy was everywhere. Josiah, when he heard the reading of the book of the law, the warnings and the blessings, and he knew all the idolatry that was taking place. They came, they brought him the word of God. They read this to him. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verse 19, it says, when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. He was so absolutely beside himself. He knew when he heard the word that his kingdom was not walking with God, that the word of God was not being listened to, that the Levites weren't even teaching the word of God, which is what they were supposed to do. And he tore his clothes in anguish over the spiritual state of God's people. As a result of this warning, from the word. The king wanted to know if these things would happen. So he sent individuals to inquire of a prophetess, and she sent a message back to Josiah, and says, because your heart was tender, you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants. And because you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers. You shall be gathered to your grave in peace so your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place and on its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. Well, with this information, Josiah didn't give up. He didn't say, oh, well, I'm not going to go through this. Y'all are going to have to deal with it. I'm just going to serve as king and we'll see what happens. He began to institute reforms that should have been done years and years before. In 2 Chronicles chapter 35, verse 18, he begins to reinstitute the Passover. Think about that. They weren't in the word of God. They weren't following what the word of God had told them to do. They were worshiping all kinds of idols. They had created all kinds of high places. The temple was in disarray. They weren't taking up the offerings that were supposed to be to support the Levites who were supposed to be teaching the people what the word of God had to say. There was apathy all around them and he begins to reinstitute what God had told them to do in the word of God. And one of the things that he did is he began to celebrate. Think about this. They weren't celebrating the Passover. He begins to have a Passover celebration again. Oh. Understand what this is a picture of. It's the picture of the rescuing of Israel out of Egypt. It's the picture of salvation by the blood of the Lamb. It's a picture of Christ. Christ. Who's coming through the line of Josiah to come? And Josiah knew it. He had the Davidic covenant. He understood that through him that this line was going to take place. He believed it with all his heart. He worshipped God fully and wholeheartedly from the time he became king to the time that he died. He understood exactly what this was all about. And I love the passage where it says there had not been a celebration of the Passover in Israel like what Josiah did. Except for maybe the days of Samuel, who is before David. Samuel the prophet who anointed David. Why do you think there was a celebration by Josiah? of the Passover in this way. I believe it's because he knew the Davidic Covenant. He knew that God is a promise-keeping God. He knew that the Messiah would come through him and he was worshiping God for the salvation that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Think about that. Incredible, folks. God uses imperfect people to accomplish his perfect plan. Whether it's David we look at his life and just amazing. But we recognize his imperfection and we're challenged to keep short accounts with God. Keep short accounts, folks. Or Solomon charmed by the things of the world, keep your eyes on Christ. Don't get your eyes on the storm. It's not worth it. Peter learned that. Pretty quickly, didn't he? Keep your eyes on Christ. Manasseh repented wholeheartedly. And in spite of all his sin and wickedness, God's faithfulness to bring him back to the land. And when he did, Manasseh knew the Lord is God. Or Josiah, where we learn to follow God no matter the outcome. God uses imperfect people in order to accomplish his perfect plan. How are we walking with the Lord? How are we keeping our eyes fixed on the Lord? How are we following God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind? Folks, that's the story of Christ's coming. In spite of these great men, the Lord still needed to come because the Lord himself is the only one that could pay for our sin so that we might be saved, that we might be forgiven. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads with me for a moment? What's God doing in your life today? How's the Lord leading you? What's he allowing circumstantially in your life? What's he calling you to? How are you gonna follow him? wholeheartedly, half-heartedly. You're gonna give lip service, I think of were graduates. You're gonna follow the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You're gonna trust God with every fiber of your being, no matter what the circumstances may be. You're gonna walk with God in a way where people look at you and they don't see you, they see God in you and they glorify your heavenly Father. They say, oh, look at, look at how God uses an imperfect individual in such a beautiful, perfect way. Folks, how are we walking with the Lord? When God looks at us and sees our lives, does he see hearts that are yielded to him? When people watch us, Do they begin to recognize that we truly do have a love relationship with our Lord? What is it that they recognize about us? What is it that they see about us? How are they glorifying God, our Father, as they see the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit within us, changing us and transforming us? Would you stand with me for a moment And I want you to just respond as the Lord leads you. What's God doing in your life? What is it that the Lord's saying to you this morning? Maybe you don't know the Lord and you need to to be saved this morning. You don't have a personal relationship with him. Would you take a moment and come forward and talk with somebody, let them pray with you and share Christ with you, the gospel, the good news. These kings that we looked at so briefly this morning were all in the line of the perfect one, the only begotten, the unique son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. How are we worshiping him today? Whatever God's doing in your life and whatever it is that he's allowed or orchestrated, are you rejoicing in it? Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. James says, count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into various trials, knowing that these trials produce endurance. How are we walking with the Lord and experiencing him moment by moment, day by day, rejoicing in the fact that God does use imperfect people to accomplish his perfect plans. Thank God for that. Take a moment. You do as the Lord would lead you this morning. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for this song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full on his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. What a beautiful truth that is. Lord, I thank you that we have the op- opportunity to experience you every day, moment by moment. Lord, I thank you that you've called us into a relationship with yourself I pray, Lord, that we would experience your power, your grace, your love today. And Lord, that we would choose in our hearts to walk with you no matter what, to trust you no matter what. We love you, we thank you for the graduates, thank you for each and every one of them. Bless them, minister to them and their families. Lord, may they know they're loved. And Father, thank you for this church body. I pray that you continue to do a work and each and every one of us draws us to yourself. We love you. We're grateful for your grace. And in Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said, amen. 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 God bless you. Thanks so much for being here this morning. Have a great day.